This is a podcast from Minute Media. Welcome to the Pride of London podcast, part of the fan-sided podcast network. Please welcome your hosts, Gabe Henderson and Travis Tyler. What is going on, everybody? My name is Gabe Henderson, and welcome into this edition of the Pride of London podcast. Along with me is my co-host and co-editor, Travis Tyler. And we've got a lot to talk about this week. It was a more eventful week than I think many of us expected here at Chelsea, despite the new year and the turn into a really busy January. So, um, Travis, just opening thoughts on the last week. Yeah, I'm I'm supposed to be on my break and resting and recuperating, and I end up fighting the whole internet about Lugaku. So, yeah, a lot a lot happened. A lot to talk about. Yeah, for sure. And don't uh, <laughs> don't get me wrong. I know how you feel on that. I was uh, you, you might have taken on the entire internet as it related to Lukaku, and that's where I was at the other day when I uh, tweeted about Callum Hudson Odoi and defended him after the Brighton game. I think I had yeah, a few, you were still few getting, thousand responses. Yeah, people were still replying on that like days later because I was tagged in the same tweet. Yeah, so, it was uh, yeah. it was something, but um, we we won't really hit on it this episode. But Callum Hudson Odoi is a Chelsea caliber player, and that's all I will say on that. So on that note, let's uh, let's recap the Brighton match a little bit. Obviously, we've got bigger fish to fry in this episode, but we do want to kind of hit on that a little bit. So, what were your takeaways from the one-one draw with Brighton? Yeah, well, like we were talking about before we started, it's hard to remember what happened in this match. So I'm looking off my phone at notes as I talk here. So we, we had very little control in this game and Brighton's a good team on paper, at least, you know, they're very good at the whole expected goals thing. They just don't really get the finishing to go with it. And I thought we actually were defending better than we normally did. We were just allowing them a whole lot of shots because we couldn't control things higher up the pitch. We didn't really have a whole lot of presence up higher. But none of those shots were really all that dangerous. There were, you know, just tiny, weak little shots. And eventually one just bounced off, uh, reached James's head and into the goal, basically. Right? That was, wait, no, that was Villa. Villa? Well, then I'm, I definitely don't remember anything about Brighton. Um, yeah. Brighton was the 91st minute equalizer to the former Arsenal striker. Okay. That was the boxing day. No, I don't even know. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm going to be honest. I'm blanking on this game just because of everything else that's happened. Lukaku scored. Hudson Odoi missed the center. Um, people slated him for it yeah um yeah we had no control and that's all i've really got (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know i'll i'll expand on the no control a little bit this is this is a rarity under thomas Tuchel. i i wish i had it in front of me i wish someone had put out a stat or talked about it a little more this was one of the only matches that we've seen where chelsea conceded possession to an opponent brighton actually had a majority of possession in this game which is Kind of surprising, considering the fact that we let them come to Stamford Bridge and play the way that they wanted to. Like you said, they were a bit of just typical Brighton. It was they were XG kings throughout the entire game, but they really were wasteful in front of goal. And I think the biggest thing with us during that game was we were just fatigued. And everyone was really hard on... Um, players like Callum Hudson-Odoi and others when, I mean, specifically speaking about Callum Hudson-Odoi, he had just finished 90 minutes on the back of coming back to training two days beforehand against Villa um, after COVID. So we had COVID, he had two days of training, and then he played 90 minutes against Villa. Then he had another two or three days rest and then played another hefty uh put in another hefty shift against Brighton. So it was like, I didn't take any of those results too seriously um, or any of his performance too seriously. And the same with Jorginho, you know, but this is the one time we've seen the Chelsea midfield in recent times just get absolutely run over. 
it was non-existent against Brighton. And that's all credit to Brighton. They played really well. And say what you will about some VAR decisions, non-decisions, you know, um, everyone slandered hudson Adoy for not being able to square that cross. But in the end, after the game, we get a different angle on social media and we see that I can't for the life of me remember which defender it was. It might have been Kukurea. Um, but he ended up reaching his hand out and essentially taking away a goal. So that should have been a red card for Dogzo, and that would have been that. And then, you know, you have another questionable decision with Mason Mount there at the end where I don't think we even got a replay of it really, but all the journalists at the game said they got a replay and Mount didn't look like he fouled the defender and we had the ball in the back of the net and it was 2-0, but the whistle blew it dead before it even went in, didn't go to VAR. And then maybe a minute to 30 seconds later, Brighton scored the equalizer. So it was without rambling on, it, it was really frustrating, but it was a lot less frustrating considering the circumstances. You know, I went into that game after watching the team for the opening 15, 20 minutes, just thinking, you know, we'll be lucky to get out of here with a draw. Same with Everton and Wolves. You know, it's just, I'm not going to say we were at a disadvantage as we were in those other two games, but that team was exhausted. So I'm not going to really say too much more on that. Yeah, I mean, on that point, this was the game where we were saying beforehand when James was in the lineup, that we really thought like this was the day he was going to get a rest. And then 27 minutes in, he gets injured. And, you know, I had this conversation with people about how, you know, Tuchel has rotated more than any other Chelsea manager and, you know, players have been injured and all that. Well, you know, Reese James, it started like something of all but like two games since our November break. So some players are getting rotated out, but James was not one of them. And he even he started in Alonzo's spot at left wing back. So we were resting Alonzo and still playing James again. And I'm not saying that's what caused the injury, but fatigue is definitely a part of injuries. You know, the more tired you are, the more likely they are. And, you know, now we're without James for who knows how long. And I, I'm not going to say, like, if we hadn't started him, this injury wouldn't have come, but it's hard to look past that he kind of probably shouldn't been, have been playing this game that, you know, someone else should have been in that spot. Um, Kirstensen also went out injured uh, at the half. So, you know, just these little things that are digging into us. And, you know, even with all this rotation, some players aren't rotating and that's going to bite us later if they don't get some chance at some point. Yeah, you know, and that was probably the most frustrating part of the game is the fact that I wrote an article before the game saying that Jude Soons at Bell should have started just because I didn't want Lukaku going 90 minutes against Brighton, which because of the other two injuries, he ultimately had to. Now, I when I wrote that article, I wasn't expecting him to completely miss out against Liverpool, but that's a subject for later. On Reese James, yeah, you know, I actually I put out a tweet before the game And I think I was on predicted 11 duties for the site as well. And I didn't have him in the lineup, but I said, Reese James should have gotten a rest tonight. He needs it far more than Marcus Alonso after nearly getting injured against Villa. So yeah, you know, like you said, we, we, we obviously don't wish for it, but, and we, we don't know if fatigue ended up playing a part, but it could have. So, but at the same time, we are, reaching a point where we have no depth at wing back and thank goodness we are now into January to where if we need reinforcements, we can go get them. But I know you've preached this topic way too many times is it's hard to find wing backs, especially in January. So, I mean, I guess we can have this conversation now um, as opposed to after the Liverpool recap. And I guess it serves as a good transition do you think now with Reese James out with a hamstring tear for six to eight weeks, do you think the three, four, three or any three at the back system, including wingbacks is the way forward? I would personally say no, because you can't play those formations without good wingbacks. 
Like so much of how three four three and three five two work is through the wingbacks being able to do everything. You know, they need to be able to track back. They need to be able to defend. They need to be able to press. They need to be able to go up and create with the ball. They need to go into midfield. They need to get into the box. They need to do everything. And when you have Reese James and Ben Chilwell, that's awesome. You can do that. But, you know, suddenly when you're looking at, you know, Pulisic, all right, now Pulisic has to go all the way back and defend. Hudson Odoi has to go all the way back and defend. Alonzo has to be able to get up and down the pitch. Osvaldo Coeta has to get up and down the pitch. Like, they're not able to do it all in the same way those guys were. And simply because of how short our depth there is all of a sudden, it makes way more sense to me to just go for it in the back. And, you know, even if you just start like one full back, you're still kind of getting the same thing, but your shape is different enough that you're not overextending yourself a lot. And that's been our issue a whole lot recently is overextending ourselves at the back, no matter what the formation is. And that's not going to get better with the wingbacks. I mean, this all started, this whole poor run of form started with Ben Chilwell's injury. So just one of these superstar wingbacks that we have going out was enough to, you know, just join us at the back. Now we have both of them out. And I, I, the first 30 minutes against Liverpool showed, like, this is not something that's going to be sustainable against most teams. Like, Liverpool obviously are going to hit you in behind more than other teams will. But every team in the Premier League is going to be looking to do that because they all sit back against us. So, it, for me, it's just not as sustainable as it could have been. And even if three at the back was what worked for our players before, it doesn't work for the players we currently have able to play. You know, maybe we can go into the market and get like Lucas Dignay or, you know, whoever and shift some bodies around. But we're already kind of behind on that. We need to have been doing business already because we've seen these issues. We've had these issues. And we have such a crazy January that by the time we're able to negotiate a deal and get anything done, like our season might be pretty settled. And I, I, I hope that's not the case, but you know, if I'm too glad, I'd be looking at other solutions right now that don't involve these two key positions being with players. You just don't have anymore. Yeah. You know, and I think that's one of the major benefits of bringing in someone like Luca Dean is the fact that he has experience playing in a back four mostly. I mean, he's got the traits to be a wingback, but he's not really a wingback right now. We just know that he can be. So even with bringing him in, I think the back four temporarily is the way forward, given the lack of depth at wingback and how hard it is to find wingbacks. So, you know, you and I are both in agreement that the back three is the way forward for this team. But right now, I think that conversation is flipped on its head, given the injury issues. And, you know, the one thing that I always revert back to is maybe we won't be great in a back four. We traditionally haven't defended well in a back four, per se. You know, um, I know... Travis Flock loves to point out on Twitter that our last few major trophies have all come playing three at the back. And I think the one saving grace there is something that you always talk about in the fact that Chelsea can play like Nagelsmann's Bayern Munich, who does play a four at the back. So, you know, it's we don't have to change up our style that much, but we can accommodate for those losses. So, I mean, do you do you really think right now with our current injuries that we could play that flexible a style like Bayern Munich? Yeah, let, let me pin that one real quick and make everyone hate me a little more. When Frank Lampard was struggling in his first season with four at the back, he switched to three at the back for a few games, and suddenly our form turned, and then he was able to go back to four at the back. So, you know, maybe Lampard's not necessarily – the person you should hold up as an example of this, but you know, sometimes you need to change things just to get out of whatever rut you're currently in. And like, we we're obviously in a rut. I mean, Liverpool game might've felt good, but it was a draw and it was a draw after a draw. And, 
you know, we're, we're not where we really want to be, even if it kind of feels like we are, you know, but you know, going to the Nagelsmann thing, his, it, when he went to Leipzig, he did, he kept the four, four, two that they'd been using. And eventually he kind of transitioned it to his three, five, two, three, four, three over time. He's, he's kind of done the same thing here at Byron where they've used four, two, three, one for ages and he's kept that, but on offense, they're not in a four-two-three-one kind of shape. They're back into a three-four-three sort of shape, where one of the fullbacks acts like a wing back, and the other one acts more like a center back. And then one of the wingers acts like a wing back, and the other one acts like an inside forward. So they're they're asymmetrical. They're offset from one another in a way that. When they're in possession, they do, they're in like a 3 4 3 kind of shape. But then they shift back to a 4 2 3 1 in defense because that's what their players are for. They have that kind of set of players. And it's not dissimilar to what Jose Mourinho did when he was at Chelsea last time, where, you know, Branislav Ivanovic, he would go flying up the flank over top of William. Eden Hazard would be flying up the flank, and Ajuli Quinto would stay back. So we kind of had a 3-4-3 three, three sort of idea then even, but without those exact players. So it, it's something to keep in mind that you don't need two wingbacks and two wingers to play 3-4-3. Three, three. You can do it from a 4-4-whatever base, 4-4-2 base, 4-3-3 three, three base. But for whatever reason, we seem really hesitant to break away from that idea, that mindset of – you know, you, you don't have to strictly be in this sh- shape. You can kind of be asymmetrical with it and still make it work how you want it to work. And, you know, I, before um, I just kind of jump in in that tactical conversation, I would just like to point out that you were talking about Jose Mourinho's last stint at Chelsea, and you mentioned a key name in that team being Cesar, Cesar Azpilicueta. And here we are in 2022 now, also talking about Cesar Azpilicueta being in this team. Um, I, I just like to always, when I can, appreciate the greatness of, of him. So, um, But jumping into that tactical talk, I think it's it would also be important in the sense that it might help keep some of our center backs back when in possession. You know, I know one of you and I's big talking points recently has been whether it be Rudiger or Azpilicueta or Chalaba or whoever is it, either that left or right center back spot, they often get caught out. Um, they, they're just undisciplined recently, and that's why we've seen a lot of defensive issues. So personally, I don't know how this team would handle a switch to fourth the back, but and that remains to be seen. There's no one who really does know that except for the coaching staff. So we just kind of have to see, but I think it could help in the fact that they have to be more positionally disciplined. And I think it helps that we have Azpilicueta who's got experience playing right center back. And, you know, he really, he doesn't need to be charging forward anymore. He's 32. Um, You know, everyone likes to talk about the Azpilicueta decline and he's over. I know you and I don't subscribe to that theory, but I don't think it would be smart to play him in a wing back role all the time. So and especially with someone like Marcus Alonso, if you play four at the back with him as your left back or fingers crossed, Luca Dean. So I think overall, um, uh, switch to four at the back for the reasons that you just discussed and just to help out with injuries. I, I think that's the way to go, at least until Reese James comes back, just because we, we simply don't have the means to keep carrying on in this shape. And I'm really surprised that we didn't try it out at Liverpool. Um, a switch, you know, I think that would have been the perfect time to kind of turn things on their head and stump um, Jurgen Klopp or who, whichever assistant took charge of Pep, Pep Linders or something. Don't exactly remember his name. Sorry, Liverpool fans. Um and, you know, it might have been because of the Lukaku situation and the distraction that, that caused. So um, just switching over, what were some of your initial thoughts from the Liverpool match? You know, uh, largely the reaction from the fan base was positive. 
I know we might be a little more critical, but I just wanted to get your opening thoughts on that result and match. I mean, the, the big story out of it is that the title race is done now. Both these teams needed to win this match to keep any kind of pace on Manchester City. And a draw pretty much killed it for both of us. So even if we beat City you know, the next time we play them, it, it's not going to be enough to close the gap. We, we, we needed six points against Liverpool and City, and four won't cut it. Like, that's how thin the margin is. And, I mean, that's, that stinks given everything that went into the game. But my, my very initial thought at the 30-minute mark was this was a complete tactical blunder by Tuchel, like probably his biggest one as a manager for Chelsea, because you're playing Liverpool. Why is your why is your defensive line on the halfway line? Why are your center backs in their own final third coming out to press the wingers? Like that's the exact thing Liverpool wants. They want you to press them to give to get more space in behind. And Tuchel should have known that because he and Klopp come from the same school of thought. Because that's what, exactly what Tuchel wants to do. So I have no idea why, you know, all of a sudden our defensive line is on the halfway line and then we're backpedaling and Trevor Chalaba makes a mistake and we're 1-0 down. And I have no idea why Rudiger is coming out to press and Alonzo's having to cover him and all of a sudden it's Alonzo 1v1 versus, versus Mohamed Salah. It's just crazy why we would have done any of that. Um. So, yeah, it was 2-0 before the 30-minute mark. It seemed like it was going to get much worse because we kept this high line, this pressing all over the pitch, and it just seemed incredibly silly because we were just playing into whatever Liverpool wanted us to do. The advantage we had was Liverpool were doing the same thing. Liverpool's high line was also getting really high. They were also pressing all over the pitch, and – you know, it did take Mateo Kovacic getting a just fantastic physics-breaking goal, but that rallied us enough for Pulisic to find that spot in behind and put it in the net. The first half, I said, um, the first half was very much a game where both teams realized that they had to win this match. And then the second half was, a mat- was much more of these teams realized they couldn't lose the match. It, it was we, – we had dropped our defensive line back in the second half just enough to stall their counters enough to deal – make them manageable. And we were still getting those runs in behind even with that. But we, we got more control of the game in the second half, but nothing we could really do anything with. Um, I mean, the big – the big story is obviously Romelu Lukaku wasn't selected for everything going on with him. And, I mean, it's hard to say if this game would have been radically different with him up top. I mean, he scored in the last two games, but obviously Austin Villa and Brighton aren't Liverpool. And, you know, he, he the way Lukaku presses is different than the way Havertz presses. So it could have looked much different with him in the lineup, but you know, this is something I keep coming back to is Kai Havertz didn't really do a whole lot, which was expected from someone coming off of COVID. I mean, the alternative was Timo Werner, who's also coming off of COVID. It's even worse, supposedly. You know, you could have played Pulisic up top, but he's never done well there from what I've seen. And, you know, if you felt like you had to punish Lukaku, then you're out of options. I mean, I, I hope this isn't a game we're looking back on at the end of the season saying, if we had won this game, we would have won the title. Like, I hope it doesn't come that close because it was a really big decision about Lukaku. I understand why it was made. I'm not totally sure it was the right decision, and I'm not sure we'll know if it was the right decision until the season ends. But – I mean, it just comes down to we drop these two points. Manchester City's, you know, pulling further and further ahead. And, you know, 
even though it was great to rally, it was great to see us not fall apart at 2-0 like it felt like we were going to do, it still feels like we kind of wasted the chance here. Yeah, for sure. You know, um, I went into the match after it was announced that Lukaku was out, and I thought, well, there it goes. There's no opportunity for three points for us, and I could not have been more wrong. There's a few times this season where we have looked at the play of this team and said, you know what? We might not have gotten the job done, but I am so damn proud of the 11 that were out there. And the game yesterday was one of those for me. Um, the first time since the second half against Wolves where I, I you know, I it was a draw in, in all of the other draws recently. I felt it, it's been a gut punch. You know, I felt that we just lost the game in one moment of the match. And, but this game, like you said, was on route to being a disaster at the beginning. And it was a wonder goal from Kovacic. He will never score one of those again in his life. But if that's what it takes, so be it. You know, after that, we obviously had Pulisic's really good goal. Uh, obviously, it was probably the third best of the day because you've got such high quality on display, but it was still a great goal. And even moments after that, we had opportunities to go win it. So at the end of the day, like on one hand, I'm really proud of this team for coming back and even earning a point because while it did concede the title to City, second place would still be huge. It's still a step in the right direction considering the circumstances. And on the other hand, I was a bit disappointed because I thought the game was there for the taking. So, you know, it's I'm conflicted. But overall, I, I think we played much better against Liverpool than I expected. And, you know, we could sit here until the blue on both of our shirts flows up into our face and talk about whether or not the result would have been different with Lukaku in the team, uh, whether he would have finished the one or two chances that Havertz had. But at the end of the day, we never know because he might not have, like you said, pressed like Havertz did. And so overall, I, I think this was really encouraging for us because while both Chelsea and Liverpool are in really bad positions right now, with all of the injuries and COVID cases that both teams have, I think these are the two best teams not named Manchester City, and I don't think it's particularly close. And I think it's there's just such fine margins between these two teams. It was nice to know that even without arguably our best player, we can still go toe-to-toe -to -toe with them. So in, it keeps us in second with the advantage right now. So overall, those were my massive takeaways. You know, obviously putting out an 11 with Alonzo and Azpilicueta at wingback is never going to be ideal. But I thought Pulisic's play yesterday was really positive. I thought the midfield was really good, especially Mateo Kovacic. I didn't know how we'd deal with the absence of Jorginho he obviously needed some rest but Conte and Kovacic got it done so those were my big talking points um, I don't know if you had anything left to add on the match if you do feel free um I have more of a question really what what kind of issue does it cause when Pulisic and Hudson Odoi are both better at left wing than wing back but we need them at wing back you know I've been thinking about that recently. You know, I, my big takeaway watching uh, Pulisic play left winger yesterday was, wow, he looks so much better at left winger. It's crazy what happens when Thomas Tuchel doesn't try and force square pegs and round holes. And so, you know, I'm as a subscriber to the thought that Callum Hudson-Odoi should be our starting left winger for the last few months. I am absolutely sick and tired of him playing wingback, as I think a lot of other people are. And, you know, I, I'm still – the jury's still out there with Pulisic because I think it was against Aston Villa the last game he played wingback, or maybe it was Brighton. I don't remember exactly off the top of my head. I know it was recently, but he played really well there. 
So I think Pulisic's more capable of playing there, but I do think they're both better at left wing in their natural spots. And if we can get those performances out of the two of them, I think once we're firing on all cylinders again, they can be real keys to this team's success. Yeah. For, for me, it kind of seems like if you're going to play like Havertz up top, who isn't really going to impose himself in the same way as a regular striker, Polisic's really good at coming in to fill that space. Um, and if you're going to play someone like Lukaku, who's going to stay more in a striker area, Hudson Odoi is really good at, you know, creating for other players rather than, you know, going into the box and trying to score himself, obviously. But then we also run into the Timo Werner question. When Timo Werner finally comes back, how does he fit into this? Is he going to be a striker with Havertz and Lukaku? Is he going to play off them? Are we just going to go 3-5-2 and be done with it? Like, there's a whole lot of questions that get raised every time someone does well in one of these forward positions because we realistically have too many. And they're all kind of in the same spots fighting for each other. And eventually something's going to give. I mean, it seems more likely than not ZH is going to be gone probably at the end of the year just because they're just not, there just isn't that spot for him in the team. So, yeah. I mean, it, it just seems like this problem, not a problem, but we keep running into this bottleneck up top and Tuchel's trying to solve it by putting players elsewhere and it doesn't quite work the same way when they're elsewhere. Yeah, you know, I think that's an important point about Hakim Ziyech. You know, I know a few of our writers have said that he's a potential guy who could be shipped out in January if we sell anybody. Um, yeah, I just, saw, I just saw someone on Twitter post, like, who would you sell in January? Timo, Kai, Ziyech, or uh, whoever the fourth one they listed was. Yeah, I think it was, you know, say what you will about Kai Havertz. He's only 22, and I think he's really had a tough time over the last two years with obviously getting COVID twice, and he was the one who was really impacted by it the first time. Um, He's also had two different managers. He's played a plethora of different positions. So I think it'd be a little hard, you know, and same with Timo Werner. I think once we eventually transition into the 3-5-2 that you and I say that we think Chelsea would be best in, I think both those guys will shine in different positions, whether it be as a second striker and number 10. So it's harsh on them, but I think, and this is no disrespect to Hakim Ziyech. I think he's a great player. He just doesn't fit Thomas Tuchel's style. He was the perfect player for Frank Lampard, but he's the one guy that you just kind of have to force into Tuchel's formations. And it's just an awkward fit all around unless we are going to do something wacky like the three diamond three we did against Juventus when he excelled. So, but that that's a whole different conversation. Um, let's talk about the thing on everybody's mind recently. And that's the uh, Romelu Lukaku situation. Um, what were your, I guess, initial thoughts to his interview comments that came out the other day? Uh, my initial thoughts were wait until the full interview comes out, which very few people did. Um, and even when the full interview came out, the narrative had already been set. Like when, when he says, like, I was dreaming of going to Real Madrid, Barcelona, Bayern Munich, he's not saying he picked, he would have picked those teams over Chelsea and that we were fourth choice. He's saying we weren't a choice at all. And once we were a choice, who did he sign for? I mean, he signed for us, and it's not like Real Madrid wasn't going for a striker before last summer. Like, it's not like Bayern Munich isn't going to move on from Lewandowski sooner rather than later. Like, there are these spots open around the world, and Lukaku coming out of Inter Milan was one of the two best strikers in the world, or three best strikers in the world. So, I mean, ultimately, he picked us, right? I mean, obviously, it's not a great interview overall. He shouldn't have done it. But I don't think it, anything he said is nearly as offensive or inflammatory as it's been made out to be. You know, and I think the thing I take most issue with is just the hypocrisy of some of the takes people have about it. 
you know, these are the same people that are defending Eden Hazard when pretty much any time he was away on Belgian break and someone asked him about Real Madrid, he said, yeah, I'd love to go there. I mean, this is Eden Hazard who wore a PSG jersey in an interview after they knocked us out of a Champions League. He had traded it with someone. You know, these, this is the same group of fans that are, you know, talking about how awesome Luke, uh, Diego Costa was and how they want him back. In the middle of a title challenge, Costa tried to go to China. I mean, that the whole, you know, Lukaku moved to Chelsea just for the money. What was Costa trying to do with China? And then for, you know, months later to go AWOL and blame it all on Antonio Conte, like that goes back to the whole manager thing. Like, how can you support Thomas Tuchel against Lukaku, but not Antonio Conte against Diego Costa? Like, it, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And, you know, Didier Drogba had very similar comments to the ones Costa had. You know, Frank Lampard talked about leaving all this time. And, you know, he said he would never play for another Premier League team. And then he did. You know, it, like, it, it just it drives me crazy that people have made this such, a, such an issue. And, honestly, people are taking it more personally than the club or Thomas Tuchel are which is even crazier to me. You know, Tuchel's repeatedly like tried to calm things down and fans are just like, they're rabid. They're like, let's Maluda him. I mean, Maluda didn't even deserve to be Maluda. Um, saying like, he should never play for the club again. He should be sold right away. Like, it's just ridiculous. The things people were saying about it or like, even, Oh, if he apologizes, I want to accept the apology. Well, then what is the point? Why should he apologize at all if you're not going to accept it? I mean, at the end of the day, or uh, let me go on one more rant. You know, why why is this same energy not being held for Antonio Rudiger not signing a contract or Andreas Christensen not signing a contract? If they wanted to be here, they would extend, right? Like that's the same logic as if Lukaku wanted to be here, he wouldn't have given the interview. I mean. At the end of the day, Lukaku's going to be here longer than Rudiger will. You know, Rudiger will be gone before Lukaku will. It's likely Christensen will be gone before Lukaku will. It's likely Azpilicueta will be gone before Lukaku will. This is a striker we dropped a ton of money on who's doing his job. It's not like Alvaro Morata who was struggling on the pitch. You know, Lukaku is doing his job. And you know this interview was stupid, but there, it wasn't. It wasn't malice. He, he didn't mean to like cause a lot of harm. So all this fallout from it seems just ridiculous to me in general. You know he's been dropped now. He's back in training now. I, for me, that's it. I'm done. Like let's move on. Play him against Spurs. Let him score against Conte. He can hug Tuchel. He can shake Conte's hand, and we can go about our business. Yeah, you know, I think there's multiple layers to this whole thing. And I think the first one is the timing of the uh, interviews drop could not have been more inopportune for Chelsea. And I think that just goes back to the whole idea that the people who released it, which were Sky Italia and Fabrizio Romano, were trying for clicks. And that's exactly what it was, you know, and you saw that you saw Lukaku misquoted per se by Fabrizio Romano. Um, He left sentences out. He inserted different words that didn't come out of Lukaku's mouth. And it wasn't exactly misrepresenting him. It just wasn't representing him the full way. And, you know, as someone who currently studies, um, media um, as a mass communication major, I see both sides of this. You know, people were saying, oh, oh, well, Fabrizio Romano is a journalist. This was unethical by journal- journalistic standards. And it wasn't because he's not a journalist. He doesn't write articles. He podcasts, he tweets, here we go. And he has his sources. He's a reporter. And so while, yes, you still have some ethics there, his job is to generate buzz and to get clicks. And he successfully did that. 
And the same goes for Sky Italia, whereas they didn't put out the teasing headlines that Fabrizio Romano did. But I think that contributed to the negative reaction from the fan base a lot because people weren't willing to, like I know almost everyone here at the Pride of London was, look at accurately transcribed interviews, look at the questions he was asked, look at the responses from everybody else and just give it context. So that's one side of things for me. The second side is from Lukaku. Um, He really didn't talk about Chelsea all that much in the interview. And that's people think this was this whole attack on Chelsea in the interview. He opened it up by basically saying, I'm not thrilled with my situation right now because I'm not playing. And this was, as we found out later during a period where he wasn't playing for whatever reason. And I don't think we'll ever get a real reason for that, but we don't need one. We're not owed one. That's between Tuchel and Lukaku. So he was frustrated because he wasn't playing, which is understandable considering the fact that he'd been out for two months with an injury and then he got COVID. So, you know, it's, it's understandable to get frustrated. And the second part of that is he spent the rest of the interview basically talking about Inter Milan, which is the club that had embraced him and welcomed him in with open arms where he finally got the opportunity to work with one of the best managers in the world who had pursued him for a while after leaving Man United, where he was slandered all the time and he wasn't appreciated. So it was really hard for him. And we can appreciate, like you said, the fact that he was willing to give that up to come to Chelsea. And I read an article from Simon Johnson of The Athletic earlier, and he even made a note in there and he said, while Chelsea wasn't on that list of the three biggest clubs in the world of Real Madrid, Barcelona, and Bayern Munich, he he didn't need to include Chelsea in there because I, he probably didn't think he would have a chance to return to Chelsea, like you said, and he finally got one. You know, in that article, it was revealed by him that Man City tried to come after him last summer, and he rejected that because he loved Inter Milan, and there's nothing wrong with appreciating a club and having an emotional connection with fans who embrace you after a tough period in your career. So personally, I don't have any problem with what he said about Inter Milan. Um, He was really trying to get those fans to understand where he was coming from because, you know, those are people who hold a special place in his heart. We as a Chelsea fan base can sit here and act like we're the only ones that should matter to him because he plays for us, but he's a human being. He's obviously going to care what people think about him. And that's a fan base that really, you know, revitalized his career. So, and and they hated him when he left and and it's all, it was always going to be like that. There's no easy way to leave a club in the prime of your career, but I think this was just to try and get them to understand that, you know, he really does appreciate them. And I, like I said, I just have, I have no problem with what he said about Nermalon. The pro the only real problem I had in that interview was the fact that he did talk about Chelsea and take the steps that he did to avoid letting everybody at the club know You know, as someone who's supposed to be a leader, if you're frustrated with any situation, whether it's your playing time, the tactics and all that, you're the club record signing. You're a 28 year old who's supposed to be a leader in the locker room. Go talk to the manager. Don't talk to the press about it. So I I think the immaturity and just the ill-advised comments that he made in that sense kind of irked me a little bit but I'm not going to sit here and say that he needs to publicly apologize and that he needs to get out of my club. If he doesn't want to be here, I genuinely think Romelu Lukaku loves Chelsea and I think he wants to be here. And I I think people just jumping to conclusions right away. It's really, it's as immature as Lukaku's comments were. So that's my rant on the whole thing, you know, I think he doesn't owe us an apology. All he needs to do is sort it out behind closed doors, which we've seen multiple reports today from 
Matt Law from Sky Sports and from DeMarzio and even Fabrizio Romano that it seems like that's happened. So this thing won't be going away anytime soon because it generates clicks and people love to talk about it. But as far as I'm concerned, like you said, it's behind us. Just go out on the pitch and score some goals against Spurs. The best way to get fans to love you again at Chelsea is to go bury some goals against Tottenham and take an extra step to preventing them from winning a trophy on route to us potentially winning a trophy. So that's that's my rant. Um, that's where I stand on that. Yeah, go go win the League Cup. Go win the FA Cup with Lukaku. Like, we've been in this situation before. We were in this situation with Drogba when he came in and everyone hated him for the first year or so. And then all of a sudden, he's the king of Stanford Bridge. So, you know, put the ball in the back of the net. No one else is doing it right now. It's a pretty easy job for Lukaku if he wants it. Just put it in the net. Um, I mean, there's going to be there's going to be some growing pains through that in these next few weeks. I don't think fans are going to boo him. At least I hope they don't because you know how I feel booing is kind of silly in general. But – yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he's just gonna have to weather whatever storm is coming for him, and get his job done in the meantime. And he's been getting his job done. Now he just has all this other added stuff on top of it. Um, and I I really hope Tuchel doesn't you know continue this punishment longer. Like like I hope we don't just get back into the same situation where he's on the bench without really any explanation when you know the people that are starting aren't scoring. And, I mean, that was the same issue we had, or I had at least, last year with Tammy Abraham when the players on the field in his spot weren't scoring, but Tammy had was leading our chart, scoring charts for the longest time. So, yeah, I mean, I'm all for if a player's under contract, you use them. You know, Maybe it's not like the perfect situation, but it's never going to be the perfect situation. And I'd rather the club be more successful with players that quote unquote don't want to be there, then, you know, start drawing all these games and losing all these games because we're only playing the players that want to be there. Cause it's going to be way fewer than people actually think if we start looking too closely. For sure. And, you know, I think that actually provides the perfect transition into our next topic, which is a player who does want to be here. And that's Tiago Silva, you know, um, <laughs> In a perfect world, this whole Lukaku thing was just a PR stunt to uh, announcing the Tiago Silva extension. So Tiago Silva today was confirmed by the club, signed a one-year contract. This will be um, his third year at Chelsea. He's 37 right now. He'll be 38 by the end of next season. Uh, And, you know, I'm of the mindset that I thought Andreas Christensen would have a bigger role to play. I thought Silva coming off injured after the heroic clearance against Man City in the uh, Champions League final and him being replaced by Christensen who helped see the game out. I thought that was a just a subtle passing of the torch in a way. But Thiago Silva is, I mean, he's partly proved me wrong this year and so is Christensen in the sense Christensen hasn't been as good, obviously. But Thiago Silva's really stepped up to the plate and he's played really really well he's been one of the most important pieces in that back three arguably the most important this season so yeah i mean it's it's great to see him resign uh, especially when you have guys like rudiger christensen and espeliqueta whose futures are uncertain yeah so i was completely wrong about silva when he signed i didn't think he'd be a very good player for us because it seemed like at psg he was so protected by the tactics and you know they were very cautious to make sure he wasn't getting caught out from behind and he wasn't they weren't having to play such a high line and then he came here and Thomas Tuchel came here later and we're still doing a high and Silva's playing well in it like I mean he's playing fantastically in it um I think part of that is probably you know if Christensen had extended earlier I think we're probably playing Christensen more than we are but given that he was up in the air, we were a little more 
willing to use Silva and then Silva was in good form and, you know, it was really hard to bench him when he was in such good form. So it just kind of became this. I mean, Christensen not extending is basically how we ended up with Silva getting a third year, which seemed just completely insane when we signed Silva the first time. Um, and yeah, hopefully it does encourage other guys to, you know, just go ahead and extend. I mean, Christensen's already been kind of told publicly, like, hey, you're not playing because you haven't extended. You know, I, maybe it's a matter of time before the same thing happens with Rudiger. There's stuff coming out now saying, like, Real Madrid don't want him anymore. So if they don't want him anymore, what's really left for him? Bayern Munich? Maybe they have so many center backs already. I mean, it's, it's just hard to see a path forward for him without Real Madrid as part of it. So, yeah, maybe Silva is just the first part of it. Um, and, you know, we, we have that leadership base at the back. Yeah, hopefully, Osvaldo decides he wants to stay and doesn't bolt. Um, you know, next year we'll be looking at Conte and Giorgino in the same situation. So, a lot of our older guys are all in this really short contract area. And, you know, even just to get Silva for one more year just helps that continuity a little better, especially next year when it seems pretty likely that we're going to be calling in a lot of our center backs from loan or just our younger center backs in general or new center backs from the transfer market. It's going to look completely different, it feels like. And having someone like Silva arguably – the best defender of his generation because he wasn't part of John Terry's generation is just really beneficial for the club right now. And, you know, hopefully we start pushing him into other roles like we did with Petr Cech or John Terry's with the Academy, Ashley Cole's with the Academy. Now, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing Silva kind of transition into some role like that, like the old guard did. For sure. And, you know, one thing that I've talked about recently is I've, I've kind of kept this running tally, whether it be in articles on Twitter or even just mental. And I talked about it in um, an article when Trevor Chalaba extended. The only center back that we had beyond this year um, going into the season was Malang Sar. And then I think Chalaba might have had two more years left. So even before Silver resigned, we had Chalaba and Sar still, and that was it. So I think we would be really, really screwed if those were our only two and we had to replace almost everyone around them. Um, mostly because I don't think Malik Sar will last that much longer. I think he'll end up going out on loan, so I don't think we'll be talking about him as a first-team center back. But like you said, adding Silva to the squad next year was really important because you need that continuity in defense. And I think that's also one of the reasons why in the next few weeks, we need to go and get one more center back because at the end of the day, if Rudiger Christensen and as all jump ship this summer, at least you go into next year, having someone like Jules Kunde, Tiago Silva and Trevor Chalaba, which might not be, the best fit for a back three, those are still three really good center backs. So I think Silva and Chalaba re-signing is a much bigger deal than it seems. And I'm really glad that it seems the Chelsea fan base has really opened up their arms to Tiago Silva staying another year, given how reluctant we've been over the last few years to welcome guys who are 30 plus. So, um, you know, just as I talked about Azpilicueta earlier and how it was crazy that he was part of Mourinho's important squad and now he's been here for Tuchel when he's needed it. It's just unbelievable to think that at 38 years old, Tiago Silva could still play an important part in a big six club in the Premier League. So that's... Those are just some of my thoughts on Tiago Silva. I'm thrilled to have him back for another year after this, especially how he's played this year and how he's been a mentor to guys like Reese James and Trevor Chalaba. But the one thing that we now have to shift to is, and this game will be played um, for all those listening tomorrow for us since we're recording on the third. It'll be in two days. It's Chelsea Spurs. 
And if this game didn't already have enough hype around it as a Carabao Cup semifinal matchup, as one of the most intense London derbies, as arguably Chelsea's biggest rival for new school Chelsea fans like myself, um, we've got the headline event of Thomas Tuchel against Antonio Conte. And, you know, I know you and I are both huge fans of both of these managers. Personally, Antonio Conte is my favorite Chelsea manager ever. Um, That's, it might be a little bit biased because I started being a fan. Um, he, He was the first real manager that I got to witness, which seems crazy. But it's it's the truth. So I, I love him. Um, Thomas Tuchel's getting up there, but these guys are both undeniable tactical geniuses. So I know you like to nerd out when it comes to the tactical side of things. What are you most excited about between these two sides? Yeah, I mean, it it's definitely going to be the two managers. This besides Jose Mourinho, how it used to be because he's not like this anymore, but it's definitely our two most tactically astute managers of the past decade, more or less. Um, you know, Conte's, his, he's kind of, he didn't necessarily bring three at the back back to the world, but it's really hard to ignore how much it exploded after his Chelsea and a 3-4-3 won the league. Um I mean, we we know all about it. It's not necessarily as high pressing as Tuchel's three at the back because they come from different branches of it. But it is it's aggressive in its own way. It's aggressive in how it gets the ball forward. They're going to be you know aggressive in how they position and try to stop the possession from moving forward. And you know, just in a short time he's been at Tottenham, you know, they already look much better than they did before and like I you know how I like Nuno like Nuno is not a bad manager I've just thought the squad at Spurs was bad because they just they were that bad under Mourinho too but then Conte comes in and just you know they're they're right back fighting at things again so it's going to be a really hard match and you know Conte knows the stakes of this one he knows reasonably the League Cup is going to be one of their best chances for silverware this season obviously they're not winning the title if they can make it into top four, that would be a small miracle. I don't think he's too concerned about it. Um, yeah, and then there's only FA Cup because they're out of the conference league, if I recall. So, yeah, a semifinal against Chelsea, the team that he left under not fantastic circumstances and then sued him afterwards, and he won the suit. Like, he's going to be motivated. And, you know, Tuchel should be motivated just because – now we know what our fate is in the league. We know the chances of winning the title are basically not there. But we could win the League Cup. We could win the FA Cup. We could make it the third FA Cup final in a row and hopefully win it this time. Um, Club World Cup is coming in February. We are the defending Champions League you know, hosts. We could you know, retain it. It would be very difficult, but you know, in Tuchel we trust. Um, and we've already got the Super Cup this year. So for me, League Cup is always important for the same reason it was always important to Jose. It just gives you a taste of that success. And once you have that taste, you want more of it. And yeah, this team won the Champions League, but they won the Champions League last season. We need that taste this season too. And the Super Cup isn't going to do it. You need like an actual pieces of silverware. So you know, get by Spurs. They're going to be really tough. They're going to sit back. They're going to try to hit us on the counter, which has caused us tons of problems lately. You know, we're, we, we struggle to break teams down as it is. We're going to struggle even more against the, a uh, 5-3-2 defensive shape. So it, it's going to be really tough, but we have two legs of it. And if I know anything else about Thomas Tuchel, it's that he's been able to manage two-leg ties very well. So the main concern is who we have to play and who's going to be fit enough to play because Spurs don't have nearly as many issues on that front as we do right now. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you know, the amazing thing over the last few days is people are talking about 
oh, the season's over with, you know, we're, we're, we have no chance at winning the title anymore. And I think the title was always going to be a tall order. You know, I know it's easy to sit here and at the beginning of the season say, oh, we were favorites because I think after the addition of Lukaku, we, we kind of were, but at the same time, that's like saying that Dortmund is the favorite in the Bundesliga. Bayern Munich and Man City are giants. And I know Tuchel made that comparison the other day. So, you know, while we will be disappointed to not be in the title race, you know, we expected to go late into the season. We said that would be our um, measurement of success this season. We didn't foresee these circumstances. We didn't see all the injuries coming. We didn't see COVID making a return. So it's, it's time to cut the team some slack there. But it's amazing how people talk about how this season is quote unquote gone. And we've got the chance to do something that no other Chelsea team in history has done. And that's win five trophies in a season. You know, obviously we can't win six because we've already all but conceded the Premier League. But like you said, we've already got the Super Cup. The FA Cup and the League Cup are still there. The Club World Cup is there for the taking. And that'll be the easiest of the bunch. So even then, we, we could have three without even advancing far in the Champions League or the FA Cup. So that's why I think these matches are really important. But even more than that, I'm just so excited. I, I get excited anytime Chelsea plays Spurs, that and nervous. But the fact that we play them three times over the next like three weeks, I'm not too nervous about losing one potentially. I don't like losing to Spurs or losing at all. But when you've got a chance to beat a team three times in three weeks, it's 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 fun. It there's not much stress. So I think my biggest worry is the fact that Antonio Conte is on the other touchline. We haven't managed against him since he left. So I don't like being on the other side of Antonio Conte's mind, but we've got Thomas Tuchel, you know, and Chelsea fans will remind you of that every game. So I think these are two of the, let's say five best managers in the world right now, give or take. Um, So I'm really excited to see how these two tactical geniuses battle over the next month, because Like you said, the stakes are high, and not only for Thomas Tuchel, but also for Antonio Conte. And he knows how to turn up to the big occasion. He knows how to win trophies. So maybe over the last few weeks, he's been preparing Spurs for that. We'll see. And this will be the ultimate test of our resiliency to see, you know, people are counting us out right now. We are down and out as a whole. But can we go and win those trophies as we did with the Champions League last season and even the Super Cup when we didn't play well? So that's where I'm at. You know, I'm I'm just really looking forward to and because we don't have to worry as much about the result in this one. I'm really looking forward to the tactical battle between the two and just seeing how these contracting yet or contrasting, excuse me, yet similar styles go head to head. Yeah, I mean, personally, it's a pet peeve for me to play a team so often, so close to each other. But, yeah, it'll be really exciting. I'm excited for Chesterfield just because hopefully we've just sent out the kids. And, you know, they should be able to handle National League side. Like, if they can't, we have other issues. But, you know, I, I we have a lot of very interesting games coming up. Very few Premier League games, really. We only have City and Spurs this month. and. And then we're right off to the Club World Cup, and business end of the season has arrived. But lots to do this month, lots of big competitions. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, um, as a supporter of Chelsea, this is what we crave. We love these busy months where our backs are against the wall and we've got meaningful matches. You know, I will take a two-legged tie against Spurs in the Carabao Cup semifinal over a midweek trip to Aston Villa any day of the week. But maybe that's just me. I like the big stage, and I personally like when Chelsea plays with their backs against the wall because I think that's when we play at our best. And I think the Liverpool game to come full circle on the podcast, I think that's 
the best example of it, you know, two nil down without our best player. Um, and, and we pull these two wonder goals almost out of nowhere. So it's, it's going to be an exciting month ahead, as you said. And I think hopefully all of the disappointment is behind us and the tough times are behind us. So that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you everybody for listening. Um, make sure to go give all of our articles a read at theprideoflondon.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Pride O London. You can follow me personally at Gabe H Sports, and you can find Travis on Twitter as well. You can find me at Traftical. So once again, everybody, thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.